Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. You ready? Let me sign out of FaceTime. Hello, hello. Thank you for coming to Repin. I'm Evelyn, your host, and I appreciate your choosing to spend time with us here. Today's guest is a Tony, Grammy, and Emmy Award-nominated actor, producer, and social advocate. He starred opposite John Legend as Judas in NBC's Jesus Christ Superstar. He's also been on Fox's Rent Live, Amazon's Modern Love, and he was Terry Silver on the star's hit Power. Prior to that, he completed a star turn as Aaron Burr in the cast of Hamilton on Broadway. He was nominated for a Tony Award for his role as Harpo in Broadway's The Color Purple, a Grammy for his portrayal of Barry Gordy Jr. in Motown the Musical. As a producer, he has a company called Walk, Run, Fly, which has produced multiple works, including the Tony Award-winning Hedwig and the Angry Inch, starring Neil Patrick Harris. He is also the co-founder of a nonprofit called the We Are Foundation. Their mission statement is that they aim to use the power of the arts to bridge the gaps between communities by creating access and amplifying voices that emphasize our shared humanity. He's talented, he's inspiring. He is Brandon Victor Dixon. Hey Brandon, thanks so much for being here. I know how busy you are. I know you're in LA right now traveling and uh, you're making time for us. So thank you. I love your work and I'm really happy that you're here to have this conversation. So how are you these days uh, during these really challenging times? Well, thank you for having me and thank you for those kind words. I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I mean, when I think about the, what you say, you know, the challenging times, I, I think they can be challenging on any number of levels. There are things that I need to work on, advance or overcome. The people closest to me, my family and my friends, you know, none of them are on the street. You know, their businesses haven't collapsed entirely. And so for the most part, those who are closest to me are are well. And so I'm well. I know you're an East Coaster, even though you're out in uh, the West Coast right now. Can you give me a little sense of what your upbringing was like? Was there an experience that, you know, happened early on that you found impactful and a lesson that you sort of took away from that experience that you carry with you today. I'm a first generation American. My family were from Jamaica. So my, my brothers and I were, were born here in New York and, and in uh, Maryland uh, near Washington, D.C. My parents were very hard workers. My father is an electrical contractor, electrician, and we had our own business. So my mom ran the business. You know, I mean, my father would leave the house before dark and come home after dark and, uh, it's funny. I, I did a I did a show in London like three or four years ago, and my parents came to visit me for three weeks. And it wasn't until that trip that I realized I was like, oh yeah, this is like because my father was like sleeping like all week, and I was like, oh, this is the first time my dad's had more than three consecutive days off in a row in decades. I was like, oh yeah, he just came here to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like my upbringing was, you know, I had a lot of examples of hard work. My mother's an extremely empathetic person. 
and you know, both of my parents had, had had challenges with their parents growing up. Both of my grandfathers had second families. And so, you know, how you relate to your children, how you choose to connect to your children um, verbally, mentally, physically, emotionally, and how you seek to connect to people in general, I think was a, an element of my upbringing that my parents brought into what they wanted, the bond they wanted to have with their children and the kinds of bonds they wanted their children to be able to have and share with other people. My upbringing was very kind of like a traditional immigrant family upbringing. Now, were you really close to your mom? Because you said your mom was extremely empathetic. From everything that I've read, and we'll get into it, you are incredibly empathetic. You are involved with so many different ways to help the community and to build one another up. Do you think your sense of empathy came from your mom? I would say it came from both of them. My father is also a, a very sensitive person, though he's not as emotionally um, open or effusive. But I, I would say yes, definitely. My mother has a degree in economics and sociology. She was a social worker for a large part of my, my growing up. Now she works as a healer. So my mother is very much connected to the ideas of, of experience, of phases of experience, and the ideas of connection and finding ways to connect to people kind of healing internal challenges and also healing challenges that come between people's inability to understand and connect with one another. She was always about, you know, we did a lot of community service. We were always trying to work and help and support, not just our community, but our family, you know, as a, my, both my parents have seven brothers and sisters. Wow. And so when they come to the States, you know, for a lot of the period of time. So like my mom and my aunts and my uncles all lived in a house together. At some point they put their money together and they bought a club in DC, you know, so there is this element of how do you support the collective? There is a responsibility that we all have to help create a way for each other. I love that. It's a familial thing. It's a cultural thing. And definitely my mother's like the tip of the spear, even in the family. You know, like they call her when there are issues or like what's going on. And my mom is that person. I, I want to get into it because I think everything that you've done, uh, certainly I think a lot of things professionally, but personally also thread through that level of the interconnectivity that we all have with one another. Mm -hmm. Now, I went through your social media and you said something that was super interesting. I'm going to paraphrase, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about it. You said, when you were a child, you wish you thought more about what you wanted your life to feel like versus what you wanted it to look like. Now, for some people, they're going to look at you and be like, Brandon, that's the same thing. Can you sort of make that? Oh, I know. But can you sort of break it down for people who might not be able to tell the difference between feel like and look like and what you meant by that and why you wanted to share that thought? Um, well, I think it should be able to resonate, uh, particularly in this age of, of social media and Instagramming and influencing and, and, and of image, right? There, a thing can look a certain way, but it is not a reflection of necessarily the truth or the underlying truth. And, you know, for me, as I've looked at my life, there are a lot of the things I envisioned for myself that I have managed to achieve that have come into my life. There, there are many things but even as those things come into my life, and I think we all need to think about this, we set goals for ourselves, we set um, ideas for who we are and who we want our, ourselves to be. And then as we go through life, experience changes and transforms us. And at a certain point, we have to stop and be like, okay, the things that I wanted before, the things that I thought made sense for me before, do they still make sense for me now? Is the person who I am today, are those things commensurate with that person? For me, it's been an element of, I recognize that how I feel about myself 
my confidence in myself, my alignment in my personal, emotional, psychological, and physical being are the things that really dictate how I feel, the things I can try, how I'm going to feel when I fail at a thing, how I'm going to feel when I got to try the next thing. And, it, and those things don't have any, necessarily anything to do with what my life looks like. What people need to recognize is most of the time when you're, when you're asking for things, it's because you think that thing will stimulate a feeling. You think that thing will make you feel good. What you're chasing is the feeling. What you want to secure is the feeling, no matter what's happening out here. And what's happening outside of you might not necessarily be uh, proportionally reflective of your feelings. So if you start with the feeling, then let the outside manifest however it will. You know, that, that's kind of where that, that perspective comes from. The way you sort of put it in your post was so elegant and pared down, and yet it's such an important lesson. And I think you hit on something that is a major touch point on this podcast, which is everything at this point in society and the world is moving at the speed of light. And maybe because of that, we're taking things at face value and we're not going beyond what's immediately in front of us. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone's just kind of taking whatever that is, be it a story, a person, uh, a political standpoint, whatever it is, based on surface value, images and what you think it is, a 10-second soundbite. Headlines. Yeah. Choose a side. Yeah. One of the major touch points of this podcast that I try to do is that we have to go beyond the surface. We have to go beyond skin color, things we own, the personas that we present. Now, social media is a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. You use it as a platform to speak out very comfortably about everything from the peaceful protests at the Sudan to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who worked for the Washington Post and a dissident of the Saudi government to racism, to love, to, you know, all of these things. Where did you find your footing to feel comfortable to use this platform to speak out so openly? And I say this because of this. A lot of people, especially in your position, who are in the public eye have to be kind of careful. They, they try to be careful because you can get intense blowback. And there's a lot at stake, your reputation, relationships, work. But you're very comfortable utilizing the social media platform and speaking your mind and encouraging people to reflect, to challenge where did you, when did sort of this happen for you that you decided to use social media as a platform to activate, to get people to start thinking about things and to not have any reservations about it? Well, I would say that I, I, I don't think it's true that I don't have any reservations about it. We can dig into that. But All right. it, it, it's an extension of, I think, my career. And I think it's also an extension of kind of how I see life. You know, a lot of times people are like, what's the point of life? You know, and for me, the point of life is 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 to live, to explore living. It's to expand the consciousness of yourself and others around you. And and so really, if you think about it, everything that you do in life should be an extension of how you want to be in the world. It's like people say, like, um, Everything you do, I think this is Ivan Van Sertima, an anthropologist who said this, everything you do, Anthony Browder, everything you do is a political act, whether you think so or not, whether you believe it is or not. Every action I take is putting something into the world. It's putting something into the equation of exchange. So I need to think about what I'm introducing into the equation of exchange with everything that I do. And particularly as an artist, 
um, as a person who is a representative in media and seeks to use media to propagate ideas, images, themes, and media is probably the most powerful influencer of human consciousness, then that means that when I step into that sphere or that vehicle, I need to be conscious of the energy I'm putting out, of the messages behind that energy, of, of what's going into the space. So then that extends to beyond the play or the the, the music or the, the show. It extends to how I want to represent myself in the world, in social media. If I'm going to be on a platform and engage in a discussion, what do I want to introduce into that discussion? Right. I have a very natural inclination towards advocacy, towards fighting injustice. I've never felt very threatened in my life. Like I said, it's that sense of empathy for uh, when others feel threatened. I've rarely fought in my life. I'm not a very high energy active person, but when people around me get attacked, that's when I've gotten into fights. And so I think about that with respect to social media too. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a vehicle to do those things. And whenever I, I had that impulse to do a thing, I tend to respond to it. I'm a thinker. So I will always be like, what are, what are both sides here? What are the facts? What good can come of me putting this out here? What bad can come of it? Certainly, what are the, are there people close to me or people who affect things that matter to me who might be offended by this? Okay. If, but if what I'm saying is objectively true, then should I go ahead and say it anyway? Or, okay, well, what's the ultimate goal here? Are you just putting stuff out here? Are you trying to accomplish something? If you're trying to accomplish something, is this the best medium through which to do that? These are the things you think about. I had a conversation with one of my close friends, Amanda Seals, um, and I was like, we've come into the period now where instead of honesty costing people, it's starting to benefit people. The further people are sitting into the truth of the things they see and they observe and who they are and speak about them, what's happening is now you are actually starting to gain an audience, gain a platform, maybe different from the one you were pursuing, whereas before... It was much harder to speak about things and the mechanism through which people could be ostracized or canceled was a lot more thorough and exacting. And so the calculus of what I can lose versus what I can gain or retain with respect to integrity has changed now that um, in, as time goes on. OK, so I have so many questions for you, Brandon. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, fair that you said that uh, you may have had reservations and you sort of balance that out. Was there a moment, I'm sure there's been plenty, where you put something out, you've weighed it out, but you've still decided to move forward and put it out. And I'm sure you've gotten a lot of blowback. Despite all of that, I'm still so happy I did what I did. In fact, I'm learning something new from all of the trolls. Oh, certainly. And the most significant example I have of that was not necessarily something that I was the genesis of, but it was when I was doing Hamilton on Broadway and we decided to you know, send a message to Vice President-elect Mike Pence when he was in the audience. Right. Let me play a quick clip, give the listeners some background and um, set this up. But at the end of the performance at Curtain Call, the cast, led by you, addressed Mike Pence, who was at that point Vice President-elect Pence. Take a listen. You know, we had a, a, a guest in the audience this evening. And Vice President-elect Pence, I see you walking out, but I hope you will hear us just a few more moments. There's nothing to move here, ladies and gentlemen. There's nothing to move here. We're all here sharing a story of love. We have a, we have a message for you, sir. We hope that you will hear us out. And I encourage everybody to pull out your phones and tweet and post, because this message needs to be spread far and wide, okay? Vice President-elect Pence, we welcome you and we truly thank you for joining us here at Hamilton and American Musical. We really do. We, sir, we are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us. Our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights, sir. But we truly hope that this show has inspired you to uphold our American values and to work on behalf of all of us. All of us. Again, we truly thank you for sharing this show, this wonderful American story told by a diverse group of men and women of different colors, creeds, and orientations. So what happened after? Because of the fairly innocuous, nonpartisan nature of the message, I wasn't expecting a whole lot of response necessarily. I thought it would get the general, because there was a lot of energy around Hamilton at that time anyway, so it would get some publicity, but I wasn't expecting the the huge response I got, and I certainly wasn't expecting the the negative response I got. Now, had I thought it through, yes, I would have, <laughs> but, but I, I didn't think much of the incident at all. I was like, we did it. I went home, I went to bed, you know, and then I woke up and my phone's going off and I have tweets and things. And I was, but again, even my response to, uh, at the time, President Trump, you know, which it was just a very basic, I didn't think much of tweeting the president. I was like, conversation is not disrespect or whatever it is I said. You know, I was surprised at the blowback, but I was almost grateful for it to a certain extent because I'm the right one. Because what we said was so basic. And so if you are against what I said, 
then then there are a whole lot of questions we can ask of you. And then when it comes to this idea of who can speak, when they can speak, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, is another is another paradigm that I that you know I, I felt very comfortable in attacking the sanctity of. You know, we need to tear down these mythologies about who people are in our society and and who has power and who doesn't have power and, and where my voice matters and where it doesn't matter. And you know, it's, it's kind of all part of that. So I was very glad to be a part of that experience and to be able to then face the, the nuance of all of those responses to it. And in certain cases, be able to step forward and reassert why I think what we had to say is of value and reassert why it is important to say these kinds of things of value at certain times. I was actually surprised at the blowback too. How did this come about? Was this your idea to come say this and write this? Because Hamilton is an American story and it is one of the most diverse casts uh, on out there. And it's also got this beautiful fusion of like all these different musical styles. And it's just an incredible, incredible production. How did that moment come to be, Brandon? Um, we were doing a two show day. So we'd had a matinee and I was at uh, dinner in between shows. And, you know, anytime a celebrity or a public official comes to the show, they notify the show in case they need extra security, things like that. And so the show had been notified and the producer just called me and said, you know, we've been told that we have a special guest this evening. And in light of everything that's been going on in the nation, the election, we feel it would be valuable for us to use our platform to make a statement. Would you be willing to read a statement for us? And I was like, yeah. And so then we all kind of met at the theater to kind of go over what they thought we should say. And, you know, we made a couple adjustments to it and then was like, okay, let's go do the show. And then we'll, we'll talk to them after the show is done. So after all of that, all your phone blowing up and all this stuff, did it sort of renew your conviction of who you are? Did you feel good about it despite all the craziness that you were getting and all the, the trolls? I did feel good about it. I didn't, I didn't feel like any sort of further conviction in who I was, but these things make sense. We have nothing, we've done nothing wrong here. The thing that was interesting to me was also then in the blowback, then you become a target and then people go scour your social media for anything they think that they can spin in a negative fashion. And kind of going through that again was, was an interesting experience. I didn't feel it very viscerally because I just wasn't on social media that much at that time. But to be able to be a part of this new phenomenon uh, of kind of like cancel culture, I guess, or, or people picking through your past and then attempting to legislate or interpret your past based on their view of the present, I thought was, was very, it's very good because it allows you to attack lack of perspective, allows you to dismantle lack of nuance in making arguments and in indictments of people. It allows you to start to unpack this very binary paradigm we like to apply to things hypocritically and be like, okay, this is why your interpretation of that is both incorrect, false, and prejudicial. And this is why, you know, if we really want to unpack this conversation of the integrity of people, the spectrum of a value of a person, what they've contributed versus what they've done, then this is a valuable conversation and we should do this. But we need to start to accept that this, we all human beings are a spectrum and I can do great things or I can be, I can produce great things and I can commit horrible acts. I'm, I can do both things. Right. And are we going to have a more evolved conversation about what that says about humanity? Or are we just going to continue to pick sides about who we can still celebrate, who we can't celebrate, 
who's good, who's bad. Uh, this person sucks because they killed all these people. This person's great because they built a nation, even though they killed all these people. There's a lot of people that don't have that perspective. Most people don't realize that they're ignorant. I realize that I'm ignorant and that enables me to work hard enough to try and speak about things with some level of nuance and intelligence. But if you don't realize that, you won't try to do that. Okay, that was my question. Okay. <laughs> Going back to what you said earlier, which I loved, was owning something is, is in an effort to, to feel something. And we don't ever really stop to think about or ask ourselves, like, is this what we really want? Right. We just sort of go through the, the, the motions. I hear this is the bridge to what I want. Or I hear this is what I want. So I'm going, yeah. 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 So you have this incredible ability to slow down, step back, look at everything from multiple perspectives. And I know you're also a voracious reader. And you have this incredible ability to question and challenge and take what you're reading. And I'm almost going to say cross-reference things. So how are you able to learn how to do this? And for people who are still not quite on that path yet, what would you say to them? I, I went to a very good school. I have very good teachers. I was just educated very well in deductive reasoning and in, in creative analytical thought. Um, I'm fortunate enough that I went to a private school whose curriculum was designed more to teach me how to think as opposed to teach me what to think. That's a very crucial pivot. I went to high school in D.C. at the National Cathedral, but we had our Bible class. And in that Bible class, we didn't like read Bible study. We studied the history of the construction of the Bible. So we can analyze, no, this is comes from four different translated languages, a series of different texts that were consolidated. You know, it's like, so you can have an analytical approach even to this faith-based system in which we're all, you know, so I, I was just very fortunate that my parents worked hard to put me in a place where I could get that kind of education, that they worked hard enough to pay for a place that could get me that kind of education. And I, I've simply carried that forward. But I will tell you, the thing that, that I have had to learn to do and that I think everybody needs to start to learn to do is recognize that it, it, actually it's, it's an element of humility. It's recognizing that what you think, you know, might not necessarily be wholly true and a willingness to question the things you think, you know, willingness to question the things that you argue, won arguments over before willingness to question your perception of the world, willingness to question your, your control over your environment and your perception of your environment. Um, I, that, that's a thing I've had to start to let go of. I'd start to let go of things, the idea that certain things are impossible or that certain people wouldn't ever do certain things or that this thing I know that I've fought people over, that I'd be like, all right, but why do you know that? Do you know that because it's commensurate with your experience and the things you have tried out? Or do you know that because you simply accepted that because it was told to you at an early enough age? And are you willing to unpack that idea? That's amazing. Was there one moment where something you believed wholeheartedly to be true, you started to get challenged? What was that experience like? And why was it hard? And how did you grow from it? Um, it those kinds of experiences came for me very early on. They came in the religious space. Um, I grew up Episcopalian. You believe the things you're told to believe as a child. Um, but I will say that my experience of going to church and being in the system never connected with me emotionally. So there was a dissonance between 
what I'm being told and what I'm feeling and I'm experiencing. I think my mom experienced some of the same things. So then we went to a Unitarian church after that, which was a, a, a different experience, but a far more connective one. For me, because of the incredible power and influence of religion over people's social systems and, and psychological systems, but also outside of that realm, in the realm of history, anthropology, and politics, the more I like learn and the more I was starting to read, my interpretation of, re- of the Episcopalian religion in the world was such a narrow field. And so then unpacking kind of U- U.S. Christianity and then Judeo-Christian religions, religious systems in the U.S. and then in Europe and abroad. It, 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 these things, just everything I learned gave me a, a new piece of information about uh, something I was told was very absolute. Right. And so once you experience that, then you start to look for other places where that's happening. Who else has given me a message that was absolute that I've discovered is not at all. <laughs> but when you first were challenged by something that you thought was absolute and then you realized it wasn't, can you talk about the choice of deciding to move forward and to investigate versus being so disillusioned that you were turned off by it? Chances are, because of, I think, the nature of who I am, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't accepted all that much too fully into my my being anyway. So, you know, I, I've always I'm always the kind of person who will stand in the corner of the room rather than sit in the middle of the room because I want to observe everything before I decide how I'm going to enter into it, how I want to be in this. You know, I'm, I've always been that kind of person. So I, I think there's always been a an observational element of me. I talk to people a lot about like, you know, why people are unable to inject more objective truths into their interpretation of religious mythology and folklore. And it's because a lot of the times our religious philosophies and the things that are girded by them are so interwoven into our interpretation of the world, who we are, the things we've sacrificed, the things we've worked for, that if you're going to unpack my understanding and my acceptance of what this thing is, it's not just me exploring a new idea. It's me having to restructure the entire perspective through which I view life, my sacrifices, the sacrifices of the people. Around. It's like I have to start to disrupt so many things right. that I'm not trying to do that. You think that's the major hurdle that a lot of people can't overcome? Absolutely. I think that's with the things that we've decided with certitude in general, but I think it, it specifically holds sway when it comes to um, our religious alignments and our alignments to certain religious ideas because life is so challenging and so hard that we reach for something outside of ourselves, a greater power, a greater force for support in that. And and so therefore, anything that challenges that paradigm is uncomfortable for. Yeah, because you basically are saying the way you're laying it out, you have to gut your entire being, like from the bottom up, from everything that you are as a person. I mean, there's going to be very few that's going to be willing to do that. So- For someone who may be daunted by this undertaking, but want to make the steps, want to expand and explore and question, like what would your advice be to slowly start to step back and and question, but without the daunting task of like gutting everything that you are and and how you see the world? Because that seems like like just an overwhelming thing that no one's going to want to touch. Yeah, I, I think maybe if you can start to come into contact with the idea like that, okay, look, a lot of people, they think there are challenges in the world and their life. They want things to change. They want things to get better. But a lot of us say that without thinking about what that means. 
in order for things to change, they have to break. Right. And breaking is usually hard. And so for me, it's, it's kind of about accepting in this yearning for something more, something different and transformation, a greater understanding. If you can accept that it will mean that the current state of things has to change, if you can really subject yourself to that <laughs> without maybe thinking too, too much about the actual process, <laughs> but commit yourself to, okay, I, I, I do want things to transform. So I'm going to open myself up to thinking about how that can happen. I'm going to open myself up to asking a question about this thing that I was so certain about before with the understanding that that thinking about it, that questioning it doesn't even invalidate the conclusion I had before. It might validate the conclusion I had before, but without the process of exploration, I don't know. I don't grow. Nothing changes. Do you feel like you've got everything down or are you continuing to challenge yourself? And how are you doing that so you can continue your personal growth? You can continue reflecting. I don't have anything down. <laughs> I don't have anything down. I am I am still wildly wildly ignorant. <laughs> I don't have everything down. Um I I suppose why I don't say more more often because I feel like I need more information. I feel like I'm not certain. So I don't want to say anything yet. The more I learn, the more I recognize how little I know. It's one of those things that I remember it used to surprise me. I, I can't remember what basic thing it is that I <laughs> that I, I came to understand was a couple of years ago. And I was like, the amount of times I'm shocked at my ignorance, when I know for a fact, just, just statistically, data-wise, I'm educated in the 99th percentile of people in the United States. And I'm wildly ignorant. And so then I think about the vast majority of the people who weren't privileged enough to have access to the level of education that I had. I'm like, what are these people doing? Now, <laughs> I know what these people are doing. So now, <laughs> now I'm like, yo, it does require a certain kind of person to be able to be like, yo, I don't know. And so I need to find out more. And I'm going to approach things with that level of, of humility. My partner, who's a writer director, he's on Clubhouse a lot. And he said, he said, you know, it's remarkable. I'm listening to this guy speak and the, the, the confidence and the authority with which this guy speaks. He's only done one short film. He's like, it's weird. He's like, but I know other cats on this, their resumes are, and there's just a different energy that actually experienced people speak with versus people with little experience. He's like, the people with less experience are putting themselves forward like they know everything. And the those with more experience are offering, this is my experience. This is my opinion. This is what I've seen. This is because they recognize that they've seen too many different things to speak in absolutes. Isn't that so interesting that the loudest in the room usually isn't the one with the solid footing or has the most experience and the ones that are quieter are the ones that have the most to offer and the ones with the actual goods. It's a terrifying thing, though, if you actually stop to look at it. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Because most people are just listening to whoever's the loudest, right? We are herd animals and we respond to the loudest sound, the brightest lights and, uh, and the kind of the, the, the loudest vibration. Now, Brandon, you are very accomplished on stage, on screen. You also have an incredible foundation called We Are. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of your foundation and what you hope to do. So the mission of the We Are Foundation is to use the connective power of the arts to bridge the gaps between communities by creating access and amplifying voices that emphasize our shared humanity. So essentially, it's working to create a nonprofit vehicle 
that acts as the, the fulcrum for what has been at the center of my career, which is the, the intersections of arts and advocacy. Like I said earlier, the arts are the most exponentially influential force in our culture. You know, a, a poem, a play, a, song. Uh, a book, yeah. an album can transform a generation. We, we see that over and over again. And so it's about how can you create a vehicle that can educate people about what it means to be an artist, what art is, because I think we have a, a very too narrow a definition of it. Anybody is capable of achieving the level of art, an artisan of being artistic. Being an artist is about mastering the technical skills to the point where division falls away. Um, a lawyer can be artistic in the way he wields his craft and crafts his argument. A surgeon can be artistic in how they complete their surgery. You know, when I was growing up uh, writing my thesis in, in college, it was on a meditation and spirituality and performance. And I used Bruce Lee's, I'm blanking on the name of the book, um, It'll come to me. I, I use the description of his creation of his own martial art form of Jeet Kune Do as an example, right? Jeet Kune Do is a, is, a, is a martial arts practice that has no fixed forms, no fixed stances or movements. But in order for him to come up with this new style, he had to master the fixed styles and movements of the foundational practice, right? He mastered the technical elements so that he could explore what you find when you let the divisions fall away. That is kind of what I, it, for me means to be an artist. It's being able to see in that which you do the connection, the connective uh, elements between your consciousness and the unconsciousness of others around you. And so how can we take the We Are Foundation and this philosophy of art and use it to amplify our work in social justice understanding? And not just in, in fighting these fights, but in creating an environment of, of nuance and involved conversation about these fights so that we're able to have nuanced conversations about the different struggles and plights of certain groups, so that we're able to have nuanced conversations about prejudice. How do we create a space where we can, where we're open enough to have those kinds of considerations for those conversations, where we start a conversation about a thing, I'm not immediately trying to choose a side. Right. Because that's what's happening right now, right? It's a knee-jerk reaction of like, I'm right, you're wrong. Or I don't want to be wrong. Right. So what yeah. side do I, I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it. Right. These are very complex and nuanced discussions and there's no place to really have these conversations. And a lot of times I'm seeing people listen to respond versus listen to learn. And, you know, people are unwilling to, to stop and check themselves and question their own position and points of views. Most of the time, uh, people are entering a conversation to correct you. They're not coming to have a conversation to be like, you're wrong about that. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> right. Okay, so give me some of the things that you guys are doing at the We Are Foundation. And I want you to talk about the song. Your foundation has a song that I love. It's an incredible song. Uh, Brandon, your voice is amazing. And it also features Daniel J. Watts, who's another outstanding Broadway actor. Daniel J. Watts is a brilliant, brilliant artist, poet, like... Activist? Check him out. A absolutely. So tell me about the song and then some of the things that you guys were actively doing with the We Are Foundation. The song was born out of a benefit that I did for kind of... Um, Children in the Arts, years ago, I was doing something with Daniel J. Watts and Jared Grimes, another brilliant artist, uh, tap dancer. I wrote the hook for it. And that's all, you know, and, and then Daniel did a poem and Jared tapped. And it was a couple years later, 
I, I was looking for some, you know, inspiration and I was like, you know, let me just write a song to this hook I have. And it came very naturally and very easily to me. The the impetus behind the song, and just for those of you out there, the hook is it says, We are the ones who will determine who we are. Look how we stand so tall, look how we've come so far. We have the strength of roots, the force of youth. We are, we are. And what the song is, it's a call to remind people who we are. In the lyric in the song, it says, Remember we've fought these same wars before. The song is meant to to help us to remember when we were the same person. Remember when we were one entity. Remember the conflicts we've had before so that we can navigate them and circumvent them in the future. And that's kind of what, again, like I said, the foundation is about. Because of political fatigue, but also social responsibility in the political sphere, we decided we wanted to put together a group that wouldn't necessarily back a specific candidate, but that would propagate the messages of personal and political empowerment to communities um, that don't generally have those messages or resources. So we're a small organization. So we really focused our time in Miami, Jacksonville, and um, like Detroit and Flint to uh, help connect young populations and black and brown populations to the power of their voice and their vote and the power of their collective voice and vote with the, with the idea that instilling this kind of philosophy uh, on the local level in conjunction with local charities, um, whether it manifested in a positive consciousness change uh, in this last election cycle or not, it's still the kind of work that is positive going forward. Because, you know, as a nonprofit, you know, we're nonpartisan. So we're not influencing people to vote for one candidate or another. But what you can do is you can cultivate people to vote for a set of values, ideas. You can cultivate an organization that can help people start to break down the teams that they've assigned themselves to and start to talk about, well, what are the values we're assigned to? If you, once you can get back to that conversation, you find so much more intersectionality you begin to find out oh, we have the same problem. You know, it's amazing because I think a lot of times people just regurgitate the values that they're supposed to have yeah, or they think they're supposed to have. But when you actually look at what they're doing or not doing, it actually doesn't align with the values that they think they hold. Sometimes. So Brandon, what haven't you done and what can we expect from you? Well, you know, I have done a lot of things, but there are a lot of things I haven't done. Right now I'm working on an independent film. That's why I'm in Los Angeles political thriller called 88. It's really about the intersection between dark money, social ideologies, and politics in America. Really how the ideas, kind of social social uh, constructs we talk about, like, uh, like white supremacy, um, are mental ideologies as opposed to kind of like physical status or group identifiers. It's a, it's kind of silly to decide that the only way to prove somebody's a racist is by opening up the door to their heart and seeing a little KKK man inside <laughs> jumping up and down and dancing. Like it's it's about an ideology with which we see the world, which is why white people can be propagators of white supremacy, black people can, Asian people, Indian. Yeah. So your movie is is built to explore that through a story about a, a financial analyst who works for a democratic super PAC and inadvertently discovers a conspiracy linking his organization with a covert terrorist organization seeking to co-opt the democratic nominee. Where can we see this? We, we start filming this year, so it, it'll be out um, early in 2021. We have a signature sign off here. Can you let me know who you are and what you represent? 
I am Brandon Victor Dixon, and I represent the disenfranchised, the downtrodden, those who believe they do not have a voice, those who believe they do not have a place to stand and stake their place. I represent those without representation. We're going to sign off with Brandon's song. Thank you to Brandon Victor Dixon for being a guest on Reppin, for sharing the power of his talent, his stories, and his voice. Be sure to follow Brandon on his social media. I'll have those links for you in the episode description. And coming up next, we have an incredible talent. You know her as Robin Scorpio from General Hospital, Poor Charles, who is now also a director for shows like Pretty Little Liars, The Connors, Fuller House, and High School Musical, The Musical, The Series. Oh yeah, we're hanging out with Emmy Award winner, Kimberly McCullough. It was already so clear to me the way that our society values beauty over talent. And I was like, I'd much rather be the most talented person in the room than the most beautiful person in the room. So although those sort of constructs were put upon me, I kind of like played the game, but I always knew that's not really what matters to me. Hey everyone, this is Kimberly McCullough and I'm coming to Reppin. Reppin is available on all of your favorite podcast platforms and every episode is available for download. So get them on your devices. Subscribe and tell your friends and leave a review. And talk to me on Twitter at Reppin Podcast. Let me know who has inspired you, who would you like to have on, and who has surprised you. Yeah, we have deep conversations on the show, but we also know how to have some fun with our guests. So get to know them in seconds. Exclusive bonus content on Instagram at Reppin underscore podcast. Thanks always to Nelson Pinero, my musical composer and technical director, for all of his magic and time. And always love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, be sure to stand up and represent. Attention, fans of fairy tales that are magical, hilarious, and grim. The award-winning Pinna original podcast, Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest, has new episodes out now. While you've probably heard of the Brothers Grimm, you've never heard these tales told in quite this way. I'm Adam Gidwitz, best-selling and Newbery Honor author of Books for Children, and in Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest, I share the real weird, grim fairy tales with real, weird, hilarious kids. In each episode, you not only get to hear a story, but you also get to enjoy this group guessing what'll happen next, cracking jokes, and sharing their own perspectives on the tales. Also, heckling me. They love to heckle me. The episodes are rated on a scale from grim to grimmer to grimmest, so there's always a great variety of tales to explore with your family. You can listen to Grim, Grimmer, Grimmest now wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow the show so you don't miss new episodes. 